Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, the quarantine edition, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every single week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Future Classics. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me, also working from home, Nicole Davis. How are you? Uh, well, thanks to my seasonal allergies, I am now ragingly paranoid because I wake up every morning with a sore, scratchy throat and a wheeze. Um, but I've been taking my temperature religiously morning <laughs> and evening <laughs> in a very highly ritualistic fashion at this point. Um, and I'm fine. <laughs> That's so good. it is, I, you know, yeah. perfect. So it's just, it's fine. I'm fine. I'm working from home. I'm good. The cat's happy that I'm here. Oh yeah. Ours are thrilled that we're home. Uh, David Luzader, how are you? Oh, you know, I'm doing well, except for my rampant alcoholism. I wake up every morning with a sore, scratchy throat and a wheeze. But uh, typically, you know, by 11 a.m., I'm halfway through another bottle of Merlot and I'm feeling all right. Uh, that's not high. Uh, if my parents for some reason listening, that's not true. I don't do that. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it undercuts the joke when you immediately. Yeah, say I know, but you after. know, it's <laughs> well, we're here for a future classics round. That is a film that has come out in the last decade that one of us gets the pick and then present to the panel and argue that in some capacity, it will be a classic. It could be a niche film. It could be a art house film. It could be something that you believe will be a classic just of cinema in general. Uh, and this week, Contagion. No, we're not watching Contagion. That that would have been that would have been a really good unexpected future classic pick if I had had it in there though. I'm not sure if that's come out in the last decade. No, uh, we watched Inside Lewin Davis. It was a pick from me. It's a music movie, uh, so no surprise there. But next week, before we discuss Inside Lewin Davis, I do want to announce next week's movie, so you can follow along if you're working from home as well. Which by the time this comes out, you might still be working from home. You have time to watch the movies along with the episodes and follow along with us. David, Around the World, a film that has not come out uh, originally in the U.S., an international pick. What are we going to be watching? Yes, I've waited too long to get this movie onto the podcast. I started my Around the World picks with a singular mission, and I worked up to it in, in the first part, but not to the second part, and we're going to rectify that now, as next week we're going to watch the raid two. Oh, i'm so excited Woo! i have not seen it but i loved the raid one be I sure to this. go back in the feed listeners if you never listened uh to the original episode where we did the raid where you also brought that as an around the world pick so yes. the raid two, check it out for next week this week a future classic that i picked inside lewin davis came out in 2013 in 1961, New York City, folk singer Lewin Davis is at a crossroads. Guitar in hand, he struggles against seemingly insurmountable obstacles to make a name for himself in the music world. But so far, success remains elusive. Relying on the kindness of both friends and strangers, Lewin embarks on an odyssey that takes him from the streets of Greenwich Village to a Chicago club, where awaits a music mogul who could give him the big break that he so desperately needs. 
Uh, typically, we'll talk about why we picked it, so I'll jump straight into that. Uh, this is a Coen Brothers film from 2013 that I saw when it came out. You could only see it in landmark theaters and Alamo Draft House and those sorts of places. It wasn't in Regals and AMCs because it was a very low-budget film. Uh, I think it's kind of a sleeper hit in the Coen Brothers catalog. Like, they have these mega films like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And, uh, you know, all these, or No Country for Old Men. And they have these really big films that everyone knows about. And then there's this little guy that was filmed on a low budget, uh, was very well critically received. Uh, Whenever I read lists from critics of, you know, top 50 movies of the 2010s, this is always on those. And for me personally, I... There's a lot of things that gel right with it for me. I love Oscar Isaac's performance. I think he might now be the actor we've seen the most. We've seen him a lot lately. Um, I love Isaac in this. I think he's awesome. I think it chronicles a really interesting time in music history in America. Uh, and the Coen brothers bring that just signature style and flair for directing that I don't think any other director or directors can bring. Uh, and how they captured Greenwich Village of the early 60s. It is a beautiful, somber film with not a lot of light and a lot of dark. So if you're looking for a happy film, this might not be it. But I think at least amongst circles of people with a great appreciation for music-y type films, a la The Harder They Come, that sort of thing, this could very, very well, in my opinion, be a future classic of that genre. Uh, So diving right in, Neither of you had seen it before, correct? That is correct. That is. Correct. I have to say, though, David, you blind bought the Criterion copy. That is a bold move. Well, yeah. So for a peek behind the curtain uh, for people listening, uh, obviously we're all big film fans here, and the Criterion, uh, I guess, collection is the name of the, the group, decided to do a flash sale where a bunch of stuff was 50% off, and all three of us <laughs> kind of scrambled to make some picks. <laughs> Uh, and I, you know, I picked out a movie that I love and I picked out a, a foreign film I hadn't seen and going on the third one, I was like, well, I know we're gonna have to do this eventually. And the, you know, the picture for inside Lewin Davis is just beautiful. The cover for it kind of tricked me. Uh, I, 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 I won't say trick. I would say at the time tricked in much the way that my dog tricked me into adopting her. <laughs> uh, so I was wooed by pretty visuals, which I guess works well on me. I, I will judge a book by its cover. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Criterion has those beautiful covers, and and we'll talk a little bit about that collection because both myself and David watched different special features inside of that that I think will give some interesting context into the film. Um, So, Coen Brothers, I think this is the second time we've seen the Coen Brothers, Burn After Reading being the first, unless I'm missing another one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like one of our most popular episodes for... Not that it's not an amazing For movie, but so odd. <laughs> it's really popular. Um, so, Gosh, that was David's pick, if I recall. Yeah, it? It, was. it was. Yes. Yeah. So, all right. So, Nicole, whenever you want to put a Coen Brothers movie into this, uh, you just... I got a couple on my list. All right. They're there coming. we go. What's funny about that is that <laughs> a Coen Brothers film literally landed on all of our missed classics lists, which you can read on our website, mgrpodcast.com. Because we all wanted to talk about uh, No Country for Old Men had we given the opportunity within this category. So, oh, yeah. they're here anyway. Uh, I, let's just go down some of our discussion topics, because I feel like we have a lot to talk about here. Have a ton of them. 
uh, a lot, a lot for me. But uh, so I wanted to start off by talking about the the place and time in which this movie takes place. Um, the Coens wanted this film to take place in what they call the lost era of folk music. Uh, between the success of like Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie of the '40s and the '50s, uh, to the rise of Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and all that, uh, which would be 1962 and onward. So the reason they chose 1961 was because like this movie literally happens right before someone like Bob Dylan comes onto the scene. And when they were making this movie, they were like, well, we don't want to make a Bob Dylan movie. And if we do this anytime after 1961, it, it just becomes one. It's, it's not the whole, the whole space is different. He changes the entire industry because of it. You can't have that. So that's why they put it smack dab in their middle right there toward the latter half of that first era. Um, and for me, it's pretty effective Like to see the Gaslight, which is a very famous folk venue, and these beautiful sets they built. They, they filmed on a lot of sets, I learned, not a ton of on-location shooting. But the Gaslight set is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure, you know, now, what, 60 years later, they probably look quite a bit different right. than they did back in the day. Um, one thing uh, we mentioned talking about the the special features. I was watching I was watching the one the Criterion Collection, which was uh, Guillermo del Toro talking to the Cohen brothers, um, and he was talking. They were talking about how for them, the setting is so important for writing a movie. It's a, it's somewhere that they like the story for them needs to connect to a location. Um, so that's why you know for this for this movie it's so rooted in in greenwich village and you know chicago a little bit is like to them the location is so very important yeah absolutely and nicole what did you think of the design of building early 60s greenwich village your favorite place of nothing but folk music (laughs) (laughs) uh it's I thought it was really convincingly done. I mean, obviously, you know, I am the oldest of the group, but I was not alive for any of the 60s. Uh, So I don't know firsthand, but it definitely looks true to the period. It looks uh, very faithful. I think the music that they got really captured the era. Um, I like, you know, this was back when at least in New York, folk music was fashionable. Yeah. And that's why you'd find people like the Gorefines uh, at um, folk music venues, you know, really appreciating the music and the, the heart and the poetry of the common man kind of thing. Um, and it was, it was sort of a, it was sort of an alternate track for, you know, those three and four part harmony groups um, to go through. So you'd have, you know, Peter, Paul and Mary, and you'd have the Clancy brothers and Tommy Makeham who are uh, revisited as the sweater guys <laughs> at the end of the movie, yep. I think. Um, and, you know, so I think, I think they really captured the era quite well, at least in terms of visuals of the movie. I mean, the, the thing that I, that really struck me about this movie and the the look of it though was the lighting. Mm. Everything looks like it was shot through, you know, like a like a 
like sunlight on a cold, cloudy day. It looks mm. like it's all mm-hmm. coming through like pane of milky glass. Mm-hmm. And it gives it sort of this watery quality. Yeah, this is one thing I said when I was watching the movie. Um, I, I sent a, a message to our Slack because I get the Criterion's in 4K and I have a 4K TV and it was it was beautiful. It just the way that they shot, especially that opening scene of him at the club. They, oh man, it looks so good. If you have the chance to watch yeah. this on a nice TV with nice resolution, you'd be like, I could touch Oscar Isaac's face right now, and I've thought about <laughs> doing that a lot. So to get that close, <laughs> be denied. Well, I mean, Oscar Isaac is a very handsome man. It's very oh, yes. handsome man, but that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, topic. yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, <laughs> no, I well, I was watching the special features of the. It's called the Inside Inside Lewin Davis, which is also on the Criterion. It's like a forty-minute-long documentary, and you see these shots where they have the camera behind the camera and they're showing you the production and particularly shots such as when Oscar Isaac and, and Carrie Mulligan are sitting on a park bench and she's yelling at him. Um, it, it looks like a very, I love her yelling. Oh, at him. it's great. Uh, <laughs> it looks like a very, to, to Nicole's point, this like dark gloomy day, but with a little bit of sunlight kind of peeking through the clouds, everything's very gray, but also just a wonderful palette of grays. It's not, it's not flat. It just has a lot of depth to it. And the actual day on which they shot was reasonably sunny and everything's a lot greener than it is in the movie. And it gave me such appreciation for the color grading of this movie um, and how they really Mm. nailed that aesthetic and they wanted it. And it makes sense to me because when you think about early 60s Greenwich Village, you think about everything that is kind of dirty and unkept and not in a bad way necessarily, but like you go into someone's apartment and of course there's 30 records just kind of strewn across the floor, across different bookcases of, you know, Allen Ginsberg work and that sort of, you know, beatnik stuff and stuff that was in vogue to Nicole's point again. And it, they just nailed that aesthetic for me, which brings me right into the movie in a very unique way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember when I was in journalism school and we were using uh, final cut pro and all that. And I remember there would be these commercials we would see for final cut pro and it would uh, have the, the Cohen brothers talking about color grading <laughs> in it. Um, I saw that commercial way, way too much, but uh, yeah, seeing this movie now and hearing all that, it's like, well, I guess they kept with it. Good for them. So let's talk about the gore finds a little bit since Nicole brought them up. Uh, the gore finds, uh, uh, the, they're my favorite characters in this movie. They're One of great. them is a professor. They're, they're the people that the Coens do best. They do nebbishy Jewish people beautifully well, because what you, they are nebbishy Jewish people. Wait, you know? no, hold up. No, I, no, the character what? that they do the best in this movie, I got to take uh, umbrage with that because it is very clearly, and I can't remember <laughs> the actor, uh, but it is I, uh, Stark Sands. Uh, our good old good old southern boy oh yes uh, oh <laughs> do you have to plug <laughs> in somewhere is it, is it troy or yeah, is it troy. al cody <laughs> no yeah troy who's you know a very cohen character but no i i agree with you they also oh, do, sure. do the uh yes the gore finds are very cohen as well so, so it's this it's this couple that are living vicariously through the beatnik lifestyle of 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 a younger generation's poetry and music and going to the gaslight and listening to folk music uh because one of them is a professor the other one an aspiring folk musician at best i would say and uh they have these dinner parties and we see two of them in the movie and it's always with these high intellectual um, 
standoffish in a way, uh, other professors and people in their social circles, and they'd kind of just trounce <laughs> Lewin in as this dog and pony show of their folky friend that can play songs every time. And they're very kind to him, but there definitely is a novelty to him as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, one of those people He's you surprised. Yeah, one of those people you mentioned is played by Helen Hong. I wanted to just point out because Helen Hong is very great. People who are not aware of her work, uh, but yeah, the they it's just so interesting because you can tell they have such a complicated relationship with um, uh, with Lewin, where they obviously have all this. They all have a connection to. Mikey or, or Mike was the the guy's name, right? His his partner, right. and mm-hmm. and that's kind of what's kind of keeping them together. But also at the same time, a really great source of tension within their relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I I kind of love their characters for so many reasons. Um, if not just because they have the, the, these dinner parties that they have, and they they're so earnest in their desire to be a part of this culture, even though they're removed from it in a way and i don't think they mean to offend when they when they do drag him out like the dog and pony show and they do try to get him to play one of his songs he's a folk artist he's very good um it reminded me a little bit of don't look no not don't look back um i'm not there which we watched on this show as well another pick of mine where the uh the young boy that's one of the incarnations of bob dylan uh is surrounded by a bunch of like uppity 1950s white people that are like play us another song jimothy and they're like excitedly clapping on their you know uh (laughs) whatever his name was uh while they're like excitedly (laughs) clapping on their couch and you know like they're all so excited by just the the novelty of him playing these songs for them and that's exactly what the gorefines are and of course they have a cat Mm -hmm. named ulysses because it takes lewin on on an odyssey nicole you put that in our docket how did they do it with ulysses that's what okay nicole's a fellow cat owner here so let's dig into this how is this cat well trained enough that it doesn't (laughs) completely claw his eyes out every single time he tries to take it on public transit because it's several cats it's not just one cat (laughs) yes right You know, with cat with dogs, you can you can train a dog to do several things for a movie, but cats <laughs> yes. are a little more fussy. And you can usually you can train a cat to do stuff, but usually you can only train cats to do one particular thing, and you need yes. a different cat <laughs> to do a different particular thing. So they did a, from what I understand, they did a casting call for orange tabby cats, and orange tabby cats look. They, they found ones that look pretty similar to have like the same face shape and about the same size. But of course, one of them is missing its scrotum. Where is its scrotum? <laughs> that's such, that's such a common really line. Did, yeah, which is, that really made me laugh. But yeah. it's like, you know, as soon as the, the, the cat shows up in the movie where, you know, Lewin wakes up on the Gorefine's couch and the cat's sitting purring on his chest. Um, I was like, oh, okay, this movie is better now. Such a such a cute movie cat, too. Like, I just need to double down on my cat dad love here and just how adorable Ulysses is throughout this movie and all of his various incarnations. Well, yeah, which okay, I mean, you want a movie with a with a cute orange cat, you go watch Harry and Tonto. Okay. But bring your tissues. It's <laughs> Art Carney and an orange tabby cat, and it's wonderful. 
Well, it's, it's not going to be a Turner and Hooch. Uh, <laughs> one thing that, that, that this is uh, Joel Cohen said, uh, he remarked that the film doesn't really have a plot. That concerned us at one point. <laughs> That's why we threw the cat in. I love it. So basically, the cat is the plot of the movie, I guess. I mean, it kind of is in a way. That concerned us. Yeah, but I mean, that concerned us at one point. At one that's point. <laughs> and that's like now having watched that conversation with Guillermo del Toro, that is totally how they talk. Where it's like they would be working in the movie like, oh, you know what? We realized uh, didn't they have a plot. So uh, we threw the cat in. <laughs> yeah, because it's interesting to hear them talk about their inspiration for making this film. They really wanted to make a David Van Ronk film. Uh, and David Van Ronk was a pivotal a player in the early Greenwich Village folk scene before Bob Dylan. In fact, Bob Dylan knocked a lot of his stuff off pretty pretty shamelessly, to be honest. Um, and but he was very very popular in that sphere, and then never really grew too far outside of it. And they wanted to make a movie about him. It's not a Bob Dylan movie, uh, which is easy to think it is on the surface. And instead, they just said, "Oh well, why don't we make the movie about this nobody that has some of some of the similar qualities that we want to." explore in this early American folk scene. Um, but it doesn't have to be a biopic. It doesn't have to be a David Van Ronk film. And as a result of that, they have Lewin, who is uh, a loser <laughs> for the most part, um, or at least incredibly unmotivated and kind of an ass. Most definitely an ass. Uh, yeah. But I think it works. I wouldn't like this movie as much if it was just a biopic. I like that it's just some random schmuck. I, I like that he was that he was a, a at least a composite character. Um, I think if you're going to make a biopic, you go all the way with it, and you you make it as true as you can. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I'm I'm glad they didn't adhere to it and make you know sort of half a David Van Ronk movie and half not. They just took little little elements out. Right. Of it. They used the inspiration. Uh, I, I don't mean to go backwards here, but I just saw another great bit f- from the Coens about cats. Apparently, Oscar Isaac, uh, not a fan of cats, <laughs> but the the Coens told Terry Gross uh, that working with multiple cats on the set was very difficult, and they ended up disliking cats in general, <laughs> largely because of their experience of working with them for this film. They said that the trained vulture they had worked with uh, making true grit was preferable to the cats they had to deal with, even though that trained bird of prey had been, quote, by vulture standards, probably a stupid vulture, <laughs> end quote. <laughs> I love how when you talk about the Cohen brothers, and this is like anyone, they're just kind of this like amalgamation of each other. Like they're a singular entity, yeah, and the way th- they're a high the, mind, <laughs> the yeah. way they talk is so similar. Like in, in, in the it documentary is. on the Criterion uh, collection, DVD, there's this great section where they're they're hanging out in the studio as T-Bone Burnett, and I'll get into him later, uh, is helping produce the music for the movie. And one of the musicians makes the comment that whenever they've worked on movies in the past, they work in a vacuum where it's like, we're going to work in this studio, make this music, and then it's going to get sent off to some head honchos in the Hollywood Hills. And we don't know if they're going to like it or hate it, but we know if they don't like it, it's not going in the movie. And that's all just done in this vacuum away from the Hollywood uh, head honchos. And working with the Coen brothers is the complete opposite. They were in the studio every single day, not trying to 
produce anything, but just they wanted to be there. They wanted to listen to things. They wanted to have the music played for them. And watching the documentary where it's just like them sitting on the couch next to each other, tapping their feet in like perfect tempo with one another, this like hive mind of the Coen brothers is just so amusing to me. And they were so into it. And that's what I loved about it is that they cared enough to bring in people like T-Bone Burnett to get the authenticity of what this music was going to look and sound like. Yeah. And as we all know, one day, uh, one of them will die and the other will absorb him back and be the full <laughs> Cohen that they once were. <laughs> so, uh, you won't have to share the soul anymore. It'll all <laughs> yeah. be in one body. <laughs> exactly. Man, a testament to siblings getting along that can work together like that for an entire career. For, <laughs> yeah, for like 30 plus right. years. Uh, so T-Bone Burnett, for those unfamiliar, uh, longstanding music producer largely, but also a musician. Uh, he's kind of one of those musicians, musicians where he never endured critical mainstream success, but has is beloved by all other musicians. Um, he came in to produce the music for this movie and act as what the Coens called a musical archivist, which he did the same thing for, for the big Lebowski and uh, which has great music as well. So he said that the Coens were quote, the luckiest people in the universe for finding an actor like Oscar Isaac, who could portray Lewin Davis and competently perform all the music himself. Um, T-Bone Burnett was shocked because uh, they, brought uh oscar isaac a guitar and he actually went guitar shopping with t-bone burnett which sounds like the coolest thing in the world and uh they picked out this really old (laughs) 1920s era gibson uh and he was more competent even as a relatively novel guitarist in terms of connecting that with his voice than a lot of people that t-bone had worked with in the past like he was insanely impressed by him and later on All of the music in this movie is performed live on camera. The studio recordings essentially acted as a glorified prepping session. They actually recorded the music you hear in the movie on camera. Um, So Oscar Isaac, damn, very impressive. I guess that's my discussion topic. (laughs) I mean, you should have put it in the, in the, document like that you know just Oscar yeah, Oscar Isaac. because <laughs> i'm with you i'm with you 100 percent. the guy yeah. is in- incredibly talented and he's this is not the uh, first time he's ever sung for a film you know if you look him up on spotify he has got several uh things that he's done another movie we watched for this podcast uh mm-hmm. um oh gosh sucker oh, no. punch that's the sucker punch yeah that's the name <laughs> of it. He sings in that one. He sings in that. Uh, I just pulled up OscarIsaac.com, and there is a whole section of it that is about his music. So, yeah. Oh. The man is a uh, a threat on every front. <laughs> yeah, he's great in the movie. And much like, much like Justin Timberlake, who is in this <laughs> yeah. movie. Justin Timberlake, yeah. always, almost always alongside... Adam Driver as Al Cody. Yeah. <laughs> Can we just talk about the yeah. Please Mr. Kennedy Spaceman song? <laughs> I could for the rest of the episode. I could. This was this was another hallmark of the early 1960s, which was the novelty record. <laughs> yes. Um, people could actually make money off of this. And there was a... Oh, gosh. Did they just call themselves the first family... There was a uh, this group of comedians who 
put out a bunch of records like as the Kennedys. And, you know, it was like the first family and the first family rides again. And of course, their careers ended uh, tragically with the death of President Kennedy. That was that was that. Um, you know, nowadays, people would probably think it was super edgy if they just went on being the Kennedys after they died. But uh, back then, they were like, nope, nope, we're done. <laughs> um but uh, where was I going? Novelty records. Yes. <laughs> so you could actually make some money with this kind of thing. And I think this was based, I think, like third or fourth iteration from uh, a song called Please, Mr. Custer, mm-hmm. which is from somebody going to the Battle of Little Bighorn. It's please, Mr. Custer. I don't want to go. Right. <laughs> it's. And then there's, you know, there was a a response record that was like, please, Mr. Kennedy, I don't want to go, which was much more political about Vietnam and um, but still funny and, you know, like that. So this is please, Mr. Kennedy, I don't want to go to outer space. Yeah. in those Flash Gordon boots. Oh, my God. Al Cody, you know, Adam Driver's character, Al Cody doing the outer Yep. <laughs> and this intense enunciation that he's doing is just mesmerizing watching that oh gosh it's so great and the song is cheesy and like i could never you know immensely if the song just came on in the radio i was driving around, i'd be like this is so stupid but the context of it all and the fact that it's Oscar Isaac, Justin Timberlake, and Adam Driver, <laughs> I'm like, this is the best song ever. And like, they're yeah. when they're playing it and singing it, like, you know, I'm kind of getting into it. I, <laughs> and I love that that comment at the end, which like, yes, it's a stupid song, and he even uh, Oscar uh, uh, Llewellyn uh, recognizes it's it's a pretty dumb song, but at the end, someone's like, oh, we just heard it. It's so great. I get the royalties on that thing, <laughs> right. which, of course, he signed away all his royalties. Uh, but just like that, you know, it's stupid, but that's kind of the reason it's going to be a hit. Yeah. yeah I kept waiting for that to pay off more. Mm-hmm. You know, that the, for the song to become a hit and for him to miss out on, you know, thousands of dollars in royalties because he was... You know, he had no other jobs and no other money, so well, he had, he had to, to take sign away the royalties to get the immediate cash payout to pay for an abortion for a child that uh, the, the, that he had knocked up someone else's woman. I think is how he puts how she it puts in the it. movie at one oh, point. Oh no, no, not how she not puts only it. not only does he knock up his ex girlfriend. He asks her current partner, he asks her husband for the money, saying that he got some, you know, quote unquote, some girl pregnant and he needs to oh, quote, yeah. get it fixed. Oh, right. And bear in mind, this is a recurring problem yeah. for him so much so that he does have a a a An account. friendly relationship <laughs> with the with the doctor. Yes. Yes. To the to the point where yeah, when the doctor's like, no, no, you've got a credit. Right. Exactly. Yes. He had paid for one that didn't go through, and the doctor's like, no, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put it on your tab, I guess. There's a scene in the movie we do, and it's kind of, I wish they would explore it in some capacity, but maybe it's good they don't. Where he does find out that he reason he has that tab with the doc is because one of the women, uh, whom he got pregnant. 
ended up not having the abortion. She moved to Akron where her family was and he never nor seen from heard from her ever again. Um, he almost goes to Akron. He thinks about it. He's driving from Chicago yep. to New York on his way back from the end of the movie. And he thinks about going. Are you guys glad he didn't? Uh, yeah, yes. kind of. Yeah. For the kid's sake. Yeah. He's a <laughs> yeah. mess. It would have, it, it would have been more, I guess, a traditional movie for him to go and to have that growth. But that's not what this movie is about. No, uh, this. Yeah. Yeah. So th- this movie's. Oh, go ahead, Nicole. I'm, oh, sorry. I just wanted to say, you know, this was the the biggest problem I had with the movie. You know, is that I don't know. Maybe I think it's maybe twenty minutes in when he gets to to Jim and Jane's apartment, Jim and Jean's apartment, and she tells him, you know, Jean tells Lewin that she's pregnant. And, you know, they have, after the, she yells at him for a while, um, yeah, he's, they talk about music and what he's willing to do for, for jobs and whatnot. And it's, it's only 20 minutes into the movie and it hits me. And I wrote this down. I said, Oh, I get it. Lewin is a dick. He's talented, but he doesn't want to put in the legwork to make it or lower himself to doing an interim job to make ends meet because he's decided he's a real musician. And if other people don't want to pay for his music, that's their issue. Well, and 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 it doesn't change for the rest of the movie. Yes, no, he he definitely does not. But I think I think there's a little there's like there's a little bit more that we kind of scratch at, which is like the death of Mike messed him up. Yeah. It, it, it it destroyed him, and it oh, is sure, absolutely yeah. yeah. His partner, his singing partner, probably a really good friend. You know, mm-hmm. we find out later committed suicide, and he's that's that's going to mess you up. Absolutely, hundred yes. percent. Yeah, but I get I, the feeling. He, has been this way for a long time. Oh, right. And, he, and he's, and he's using, uh, and I, I'm going to phrase this in a way that's going to sound heartless, but he's using the fact that, uh, his friend and partner committed suicide as a reason to not grow, uh, which is very legitimate, but it's also, he's never going to try to work through it or work past it. Uh, he's just going to use that as like, well, this is why I'm, I'm messed up and I'm not gonna, you know, take when someone, tries to hand me a real opportunity i'm not going to take it uh and that's it's it's this movie is a character study uh you know to quote the coens at one point we realized this movie didn't have a plot (laughs) so we threw in a cat uh and i i i I recognize like that frustration and i do share it but at the same time i think there's just enough for me in this movie that i'm like okay no i i get it i get what they're trying to do here and i I, it's it's it's, it works enough for me i think this viewing, I had a little bit more. The first time I saw this, I was very much of the mindset of Nicole. 20, 30 minutes in, I'm like, this guy's an ass. And um, I even talked with my my soon to be father in law with this, and and um, you know, he was talking to me about how you know I I just turned the movie off after thirty minutes because everyone was so horrible. He doesn't need any more of the you know nihilistic antihero <laughs> films where there's no rays of light. And I, I and I agree with him. There's a lot of that in in filmmaking now, um, but. I had more sympathy for Lewin this time because I think the the uh, the bereavement that he's going through resonated more with me this time for some reason. He he does seem to at times 
come off like an ass, but I really do think is just lashing out at the world around him. But then there's also this other section that David mentioned uh, and Carrie Mulligan mentioned of her character in the special features, which is uh, she is so frustrated with him because he does have that potential. Gene sees that he could be something and he just refuses. Uh, he sleeps yeah. on everyone's couches. You know, he doesn't doesn't put in the legwork. At the end of this movie, uh, a I believe the character's name is it's not Albert Grossman. It's Bud, Bud Grossman. Grossman, who is a stand-in for a real person named Albert Grossman, who we'll talk about, um, essentially tells him, you are not a solo act. I don't see money with you performing the way you are, but I'm putting together a trio. It's going to be two men and a woman. How do you feel about harmonies? And it's funny because uh, Albert Grossman in real life was largely responsible for the success of Peter, Paul, and Mary, <laughs> which is what the movie is <laughs> alluding to at the end. And... He's like, nah, I won't do it. And there's a and there's heartbreak to that because he 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 can't do the harmonies anymore because he feels too too much at a loss not being able to do it with Mike. But then there's the other side of that, which is very much to Gene's point that he's given these opportunities and he won't take them. It's a broken record, mm-hmm. and I think that's why this is probably a perfect point to talk about the fact that this movie is very much a record, a song. Um, <sighs> It's a loop in a way. And and this kind of threw me the first time I saw it. And watching the special features now, I have a better handle over it. Uh, T-Bone Burnett made the comment that the movie plays out like a folk song. You have your first verse, which lays down the groundwork for what your plot is going to be. And it's him being a jerk throughout Greenwich Village, getting punched in the alley, getting beat up because he's mean in the club. And then you have your verses that take our character on their odyssey. And then you have your final verse, which brings us back to where we started, but we know a lot more about the journey to get there. And that's exactly what this movie does, because the ending is the beginning. I think, Nicole, you put in our docket is the point of the rest of the film that he doesn't grow. And I think it might be in part because this is going to keep happening to him time and time again. He's going to get beat up in the alley or something just like that because he doesn't learn. Yeah. Yeah. He uh, he's going to be couch surfing till he's fifty, and that's that's sad. You know, a musician in his twenties couch surfing—that's one thing. But you know, somebody in there getting up to their forties and fifties and still not having a place of their own and not really grasping that—I don't know—being so married to the idea that you are an artist and either you're going to survive on your art or you're not and not accepting the, the simple reality that there are things that you need to do as a human being to provide for yourself and not taking those responsibilities on. I mean, yes, you're paying your dues as a musician, but you're not paying your dues as an adult in society. <laughs> Um, (laughs) and that's why, you know, that's why everyone is so frustrated with him because yes, they see, they see his talent and they understand that he is a talented man and that he could make it as a musician, but they also understand the realities of the world and what you need to do to lead a responsible life. And he is just ducking and avoiding that wherever possible. 
Yeah, and this this movie is in a loop because it's it's signifying his life that he is stuck forever in yeah. what is what is happening in this movie. He will forever play music and resent everyone else that he's not bigger than he is. And he will keep, you know, making trouble, pushing people away, but also staying just enough that they're going to let him sleep on their couch, but never, you know, never let him stay beyond a couple of days. He, his life is sad to be perfectly honest. This, this is a very sad guy. It's not, I mean, Go ahead, Nicole. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I, uh, I was just going to say, is, does he even enjoy performing? Anymore? No, no, he doesn't. Because uh, the, the Gorefinds, she says to him, you know, music is the expression of the soul. And the look he gives her is so telling of like, that is not his view on it at all. And then he gets, you know, <laughs> he, he gets really mad at him and is like, this is my job. It's not like, which I've been to parties a lot of parties that end with like, we're all just going to go in here now. And, uh, you know, we've got a couple guitars and we're just going to play music and that, you know, people just have that joyous uh, connection and occasion with it. And for him, Nope, that's gone entirely. Do you think he had it yeah. prior? And I with mean, Mike? And Gorfine. Oh, that's a good question. Did he have it prior to Mike? Ooh, I don't know. I think, I think maybe, I think maybe Mike helped inst- helped give him that joy of it. And now it's gone, but it's all he's good at. Right. Oh, I just got depressed saying that. <laughs> uh, sorry, Nicole, you were saying something <laughs> about the Gorefines. Oh, no, I was just saying, you know, even when uh, Lillian Gorefine, you know, jumps in and, and starts doing the harmony on the song he's singing, and she's doing it you know, quite well for someone who is not a performer. She's got a lovely voice and this is somewhere where he could embrace, you know, someone else's joy in Mm -hmm. singing and in just, you know, being alive and in uh, doing something in a, a communal kind of way. And he just slaps her down hard because he's, I don't know. I I get the feeling that not only is it just that she's reminding him of his old partner and that's a painful memory for him because his partner is gone, but I I have a sneaking suspicion that it's because he's gotten used to being a solo act and he likes it. He likes being the the lone person that people, you know, when they hmm. say they might, they like a musical act that it's just him. And I think that he's become selfish about his music and it's, it's just for him now. The, and that's the way he's going to keep it. The name of the movie does come hmm. from his record in the movie. His, you know, uh, eponymous debut as a solo artist is inside Lewin Davis, which is not exactly a humble you know, debut pretentious no. AF. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Well, and, and, and it's, it's got a little bit of, uh, I guess a little bit of irony to it. The, the Coens talked about this, uh, in their conversation, which is that no one gets inside, you know, no one gets close enough to right. him to actually get inside of him. So it's really like, it's, it's this title. That's a lie, 
where it's it's not you know probably the reason that it he he can't connect with audiences is because he can't open up he can't make himself vulnerable even in music right yeah i totally agree and and i also think that there's an element as well um where his character doesn't really seem to play music he cares about like he doesn't seem emotionally invested in what he plays um, there's a scene at the end of the movie where he goes and he finds Bud Grossman, who again, stand in for Albert. Uh, and he says, and Al- Albert Grossman's character is like, Hey, play me a song. You're here in person. I don't want to listen to the record. I want to hear you. And F Mary Abraham. And, uh, <laughs> uh, I just, it's a lot of people are That's in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he has such a soothing voice. Uh, and he plays him a song called, um, uh, Queen, the death of Queen, the death Jane. of Queen Jane, and you know a real happy tune, right? Now the funny thing about this is that according to T Bone Burnett, they worked backwards. the 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 Queen Jane is a Queen Jane. Yes, so Queen yes. Jane is like a children's lullaby that's been around for hundreds of years. And this was ad- adopted by Bob Dylan in the, in the mid sixties with Queen Jane approximately, uh, which was one of his songs. And then later on was adopted by Lou Reed, uh, for sweet Jane famous rock and roll song. And, uh, the whole idea for Burnett was let's work backwards. Let's go pre Lou pre Bob. What does it sound like when Lewin does it? And for Lewin, it is basically just ripping off the lullaby and adding, a little bit more flair to the guitar parts. It's very, very mm. true to what the lullaby is. It doesn't add a lot of his own personality or inflection into it. Um, and that that's part of the folk scene at its early inception was this true traditional style. But I think for his character, to me anyway, it came off as, I think this is what I'm supposed to sound like, so I'm going to sound like that. I don't ever really learn what the music of Lewin Davis sounds like. And I think that that is maybe one of the reasons he struggles as an artist as well. Hmm. Well, and I think he's he's torpedoing himself here because, number one, I mean, you know, I'm... I'm not a huge folk fan. <laughs> big, I appreciate you for well, suffering well, 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 this. Thank um, you. <laughs> Hey, this is a, a safe big, space. You can. Yeah, like I've said, I, I, I've told Brett I have an extremely limited tolerance for folk. It's the Killancy Brothers and Tommy Makem and Harry Chapin, and that's pretty much <laughs> it. Um, but this song, this song is terrible. Which it oh, the, the Queen so Jane song? Lyrically, yeah, it's not yeah, great. It's lyrically very depressing. <sighs> it's not very poetic the way he sings it you know it doesn't it doesn't rhyme it doesn't slant rhyme it doesn't rhythmically come together in places um and it's not a good showcase for lewin's particular talent it's not a lot of range you know it he doesn't have a lo- a lot of vocal color that he adds to this song it's not musically very challenging we've seen him do better and this is him auditioning for a Mm -hmm. huge club owner and music producer in chicago this is his big opportunity and he's picking the worst audition piece he's got in his repertoire and and we see him 
a little bit later when he's playing at uh, at the the Gaslight, right? It was yep. the name of the club where he's playing the song that mm-hmm. him and Mike played together, and it is beautiful. The performance is beautiful. That, that at the one that they show at the end, I I love that performance, and it's like do that. Like, <laughs> of course, he won't because that's you know that's a song that he did with Mike, and he's not going to do that in that scenario. But but do that do that song. That that's the yeah good right one. the the fare thee well um, <laughs> which is a David Van Ronk song uh, that later Dylan ripped off of him so uh, that was definitely probably the closest they got to making it you know, a mini biopic in a way I I totally agree with both of you why he chooses that song at the end is beyond me maybe part of it is that he does have this mentality of I am the artist and I know best um, and I think it's oh I it's think so, so yes. easy even accidentally to be an artist that gets pretentious to the point where you think you know your art better than everyone else and you know what the people want. And it's very clear at the end that that's not the case for him. <laughs> um, so I think that's part of his I'm problem. I'm sure it's that he doesn't know what the people want. I think part the biggest part of his problem is that he doesn't care. Yeah, right? maybe that's a better way to look at it for sure. He really doesn't. <laughs> uh, so a couple other discussion topics we have here. Uh, why are all the men in Lewin's life forgiving and the women aren't? Are the Cohen brothers trying to say anything here? Uh, so let's dive a little bit into that. Obviously, Carrie Mulligan's character hates him. Um, with a- <laughs> No, she doesn't. No, no she, does she doesn't. She doesn't, though. She like, gets him the gig at the Yeah, end you're right. She keeps keeps letting him in and keeps she uh, wants yeah, to she, hate him she's helping she him wants to hate him she yeah she's not she's not forgiving him but she's also not expelling him from her life the way that frankly she should for her oh, own a hundred percent she should not <laughs> speak to this man anymore for so many reasons no no she's she's enabling this guy big time um but she doesn't forgive him and his sister is she loves him, but she's not, she's not, she doesn't take it easy on him. She yeah. tells him the truth. She mm-hmm. tells him what he needs to do. She does try to help him because she feels uh, a familial, you know, obligation to do so. But she's angry with him and she lets him know she's angry with him. You know, even yeah. Lillian Gorfine yells at him at one point and is angry with him. But the men in this movie are all like, you know, especially like the club owner, Poppy, he's just like, oh, you know, he the Lewin heckles somebody in his club who's performing one night. And then the next night he looks at him and is like, hey, you know, we all get drunk sometimes, you know, and the Professor Gorfine does the same thing. He's like, oh, you know, it's all water under the bridge. You know, come in. We're making Kugel or, you know, whatever. You know, <laughs> We're making this, that and the other. Come in, have a meal, stay on our couch. And even Al Cody knows him for about, mm, you know, three hours, lets him stay on his couch, lets him help drive his car to Chicago. And he's just like, eh, you know, whatever. And I'm just like, is, are the Coens trying to say something or is this like a guy thing or what's going on? And I I hear my voice doing this thing. It's because it makes me tense. Men who act like this make me tense. Well, I think, (laughs) I think Al Cody was manipulated 
to into oh, yeah. letting him in and uh you know obviously those two share a very similar kind of sad life path when uh when he goes to stuff that box full of records under al cody's you know side table and discovers right. a, a a similar box <laughs> of al cody's own records that yes if, uh, but al cody has an apartment yes this is true yeah he does so <laughs> it's a dump but it is though you know he's also tied to some shady people who are driving a car to chicago which the fact we haven't talked about them at all is is yeah pause on that we got there's a whole separate section here for uh roland turner we will get to that um yeah yeah but go ahead david i well i know i think i think I think that Lillian Gorfine is forgiving is, you know, at the end she, they have a moment of connection and, and she forgives him. And, you know, uh, I think his sister, they have a, they have that familial complicated relationship. One of my favorite parts of the movie is when he says, uh, your uncle's a bad man. And the kid just goes, okay, <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> that's fine. I, you know, I, I, I love, cause like they, they have a relationship where she's like, I don't know. Like, you know, she's like, I'm not one of your, I'm not one of your village friends. Like you can't use that kind of language around here, but like, yeah, no, you're, you're, but you're, you're just like him in your own way. Like you're, you're, you're angry and salty in your own way. Yeah. I, I actually really enjoyed. The oh, they're, they're great. Uh, and I, and I do think the way I interpret it is, and there's another woman who we left out, which is the receptionist of his current manager, really old, um, woman. Oh who yes, the the older lady doesn't give a shit about him, and it's so funny because <laughs> he comes in looking for mail. It's like you're not looking for mail. You don't have any mail. Um, and <laughs> she and and here's the thing: she is the dichotomy to his manager, who won't even tell him that he doesn't have royalties to collect because his record didn't sell. The man's too afraid to even just be honest with him. Mm-hmm. And I think to me what the movie shows me is the only people being truthful with him that are, that are being mm. honest and true with him are the women in his life that the men are, that I think the men more so than anyone else are enabling him are coddling him. And you have his sister and, um, Jean and even this old receptionist lady that are like, no, cut the shit. And, and I think that that's kind of the vibe I get from it more than anything. Hmm. I can see yeah. that. Yeah. It is interesting though. I think you're on to something, Nicole, that they are, there's two very different divides there of how the men and the women act in this movie. I think you're totally right. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and by the way, I, I mentioned this sometimes in the middle of shows, but please email us. Hi at MGR podcast. If you have these <laughs> thoughts on any of these things, we don't have all the answers. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Roland Turner, which is like, as David said, the most Cohen oh, brothersy Cohen-y part of this movie, like a solid 30 minutes in the middle <laughs> or in the tail end where he drives around cross country with John Goodman as a heroin addict, Roland Turner, a jazz pianist who plays all the notes in the scale, all yep. 12 of them, not the, just a C, D, E. <laughs> that, that character... <laughs> is on screen the amount of time that I'm willing to tolerate that character on <laughs> <Right>? screen. <laughs> if, if they, if they had continued with him in any fashion whatsoever and that, and it's John Goodman. I love John yeah. Goodman, but John Goodman was playing a character. I did not love. 
No, he's rude and he's intrusive and he loves the idea of how truthful and honest he is, but oh. really he's just abusive. Oh. But <laughs> practicing Santeria, you know? Right, and he what what kind of uh, I'm not hundred percent sure what his relationship is with with John Five. Yes, who is, I Johnny guess a, Five barely talks. Uh, played yeah. by Garrett Hedlund in one of the better roles I've ever seen Garrett Hedlund do. Oof. I mean, not wrong, but oof. <laughs> Handler. I haven't seen a lot of range. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Handler <laughs> slash employee at best. Yeah, I guess so. Like, yeah, I guess you know, valet's not Son, far for wrong, but yeah, handler, uh, assistant. Yeah, who like who was an actor, but then when he's getting arrested, has been like, your jails can't contain me. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it is a very very bizarre group. Well, also, like Johnny Five, that, like weirdly, yeah. what's his name? His name's not Johnny Five. What is it? Um, no, it's oh, Johnny it is Johnny Five. five. It no, is it's Johnny, Johnny Five. five. Okay, so Johnny f- Number Five is even has like a moment in the movie <laughs> yes. where he goes from like not talking at all to really somber poetry. Uh, <laughs> there's a great scene in the movie that I do love, which is him reciting this really terrible somber poetry and Oscar Isaac smoking, looking out the window, just death in his eyes. And John Goodman's character, Roland Turner, uh, just like high out of his mind, zonked back in a chair, mouth gaping open, oh, yeah. staring at the ceiling while maybe listening to this poetry, but most likely just high. And it's like a, Oh my gosh, it's like a Nighthawks painting in the middle of this empty diner, and it's so bizarre. But yeah, it's job. it's a road trip from hell. <laughs> right. Definitely. I would yeah. be I would you know, that it's one of those road trips where you like wish that you could just put on a blindfold and earplugs and sleep the entire way from New York to Chicago because these people are horrible. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they're bad. They're bad. But I do love John Goodman in it. Apparently, um, when uh, I'm F. F. Murray Abraham come comes to the Coen Brothers, and he's like, "I really want that part." After reading the script, and they're like, "No, nah, that's <laughs> oh, no. John Goodman's part," um, which works really well for yeah, him. It has. It has to be John. It has to be somebody that you like for you to tolerate him on screen like <laughs> right. that. Because if it's if it if it's an actor you don't really know that well and they're acting like that, like you're gonna hate that actor forever. Right. And I, and I really like F. Murray Abraham. F. Murray Abraham has not had the level of public eye career that John Goodman has had. No, I and if he no, it in, would just be him it would be him playing a variation of Salieri again. You're not wrong. No, you're yeah, right. I, I actually only really know him from from uh, Amadeus, and then also I just can't separate him from Mr. Mustafa, who we've also seen on this program. Yes. I just can't do it. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. a couple other discussion topics we have before we'll close up. Um, I did want to mention that I thought the movie was a little bit soft on Albert Grossman. Um, for some historical context here, Albert Grossman, who, who uh, F. Murray uh, Abraham plays – was this incredibly uh, successful producer and man, not even a producer, a manager um, throughout the sixties managed Bob Dylan, Peter Paul and Mary, all these people and was really great at getting people to sign bad contracts uh, that later ended up in hmm. a 
a series of litigation at the end of the 60s that caused him to lose most of his clients, um, including Bob Dylan. Uh, and because he, they had signed really bad contracts out of desperately wanting to get into this industry that resulted in him getting an astronomical amount of royalties. Um, it's very much the classic uh, producer slash manager screws the artist. And um, I don't know why the movie... The movie almost makes his character feel like this like wise old sage at the end of the Odyssey that gives him the hard truth. And I'm like, this is kind of a slimy guy. I don't know if it needs to get into it. It just felt weird to me. That's weird because I I definitely took him as an uncaring, detached guy. Yeah, uh, who does you know he he doesn't he doesn't care about Lewin at all. He he basically gets to the point where he's like. Well, here's the way you could be useful to me. Yeah, I guess you're right. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. He's like, okay, I don't, I don't right. care. Yeah, you I mean, mean Lewin mean plays this. Lewin plays the death of Queen Jane for him, and he he plays it in a a you know heartfelt and earnest fashion, and really seems to be you know putting something into it. And literally, the first thing yes. Bud Grossman says is, "I don't see a lot of money here." Yes. Yeah. So perhaps <laughs> which, you're right. Which tells then. you what he's looking for. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay. He's just he's experienced. He's not the you know like the wise old sage who's going to help give him some guidance. He's just the guy who's who's got the experience and knows the industry and know what will make money and what won't. Yeah. And knows where Lewin's talents could probably be. Um, you know most. <sighs> most efficiently maybe even best for him you know his vocal range and style where he would fit best yeah no you're right yeah and lewin's just having none of it right no i I think that that's a good perspective on it for sure uh and as long as we're talking about grossman let's talk about dylan just a smidge uh this is something i don't like about the end of this movie um shockingly as the resident dylan file uh (laughs) so at the very end of the movie when we see the the fact that this is a loop that he's going to go back into the alley. He's going to get beat up by an angry husband again. Um, we hear and very briefly see Bob Dylan at the end, a young Bob Dylan in the late, late 61 performing at the gaslight. And first of all, have to mention the funniest thing that happened in our slack this week, uh, is Nicole being like, wow, who's butchering that Dylan version of leaving of Liverpool. It's Bob Dylan butchering it. It's actually his recording. Um, so, so unbelievably yeah. funny. Even Bob Dylan can butcher Bob Dylan. <laughs> well, you know, I'm t- we, we went over we it with, with, I'm still there is, you know, I'm not a big fan of his For voice. sure. I'm just not, he's a brilliant songwriter. Well, yeah. Not the best singer in terms right. of like melodic quality. No, no, no. And you're not, you're not alone not in that opinion. All. In any any sort of the imagination, I think what rubs that part the wrong way is that they li- the camera lingers on him mm. as yeah, lovingly. Yeah, as as Lewin is going past, it's like the camera like pans over and it's like you see him like giving like tuning the guitar, getting ready to play for a, a movie that. Uh, has been more about this character than about the music. It's like, well, I don't, I don't care about Bob Dylan right. in, in his context to the story. Even like play some Bob Dylan over while it's happening. Play that in the background. I think that would be better than trying to make it seem like 
and uh, here's the real new air of of folk music yeah that's how this is that, that's a really good point and maybe i would like that a lot better if if maybe he's leaving the, the gaslight and you can hear like Bob Dylan starting his set or something like that. And we don't even have to see him if you want to include him. I mean, my first thought is that if this is a love letter to David Van Rock, then why not just include him instead? Um, I get why not, mm. though, because Oscar Isaac's character is playing his music in this movie in part. But the inclusion of Dylan at the end just throws me out of the movie. It takes it takes this movie from being this pre-Dylan Greenwich Village of, you know, the the guy who plays the army private in the special features makes the comment that a lot of the times in, in music, when a movement starts, when a trend starts, the people that start it are not necessarily the ones that bring it to peak popularity, that people were doing this at the gaslight before Bob Dylan came along and made it a big hit. Uh, and this movie to me is about those people, the pre Dylan people that were doing this for the love of it, or, or maybe even the status of it, if you're a gore finder like, and to just throw them in there at the end, is like, Oh look, it's Greenwich village. It's Bob Dylan. Wink, wink, wink. And I just yeah. hate it. I don't like that ending. It bothers me, especially with how cool the loop it's, is. Yeah. It's, it's cause it's, if the movie was about folk music and it was about him really caring about folk, but the story is just like, well, he's not going to make it because that's what happens to some people, but he laid the groundwork for someone new, then the ending works much more. But as it is now, it's just kind of a, a tack on like, eh, 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 Bob Dylan, huh? Right? <laughs> yeah, yes. It's, it's winking at you just way too hard and I don't like it. Uh, so mm. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of that. Well, that's and that's kind of, that's kind of like the with the cat being named Ulysses, right? right. <laughs> it's like that's that's a hat on top of a hat. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and then a final discussion topic I had, and this wasn't even necessarily really a discussion topic, but it was just a quote that resonated with me that I wanted to bring up at the risk of forgetting it. Um, T Bone makes a comment in the special features that recorded music is to America what wine is to France. And then he makes the comment about how, you know, southern, southwestern France has Bordeaux, just like how uh, the southeast of the U.S. and the Appalachians have their style of country music, and the south has its style of, of music. And every little pocket of America throughout American history, and bear in mind when he says recorded music, he's not talking about the act of, you know, putting it on on tape or cassette or vinyl he's talking about writing it down passing it down um slave days and onward every single part of american life has been cataloged by music more so than any other country and culture in a way um and 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 at an expedient rate right we've gone through so much music in 250 years as a nation and that just stuck with me because he said the reason he wanted to be a part of this movie with the Coens like, was because he saw the Coens making somewhat of a historical document, albeit through fiction of saying, this is this era, this particular little nugget of that journey in America. And that just was really poignant to me. I was like, Oh wow. Yeah. Just like how you can look at France as a country and pinpoint all the different wines. You can look at America and pinpoint all the different genres. And I just thought that was really profound. Hmm. That's a cool idea. I love T-Bone Burnett. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you definitely can break things down. <laughs> you can definitely break things down by region, especially something like 
folk or something like the blues. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got Chicago electric blues and you've got like deep south blues and, you know, variants all around the place. You know, you've got the California sound right. that came out in the 60s. So, yeah. Yeah, I can I could see that. Yeah, I just... I don't know if I agree with it a hundred percent, but I can I can see that it applies at least somewhat. Right. Yeah, or like even like t- to your point there, like that Mason Dixon line of of going from Chicago electric blues to Delta acoustic blues uh, in in the South. I, I don't know. I just like that. I think T Bone Burnett brought a lot to this as their archivist, and I'm excited that uh, I was excited to find out that he had done that with the big Lebowski through learning about this movie. Cause I didn't know that, but it makes a lot of sense. And also T-Bone likes Bob Dylan and there's Bob Dylan songs in the big Lebowski. So there's definitely that carrying on. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts? Do you see this in some capacity? I'm not going to argue that this is a classic of film, but I'm going to argue that for, for music film lovers, this is going to be one of the hits. That's my argument. Hmm. I think from a uh, a completionist point of view, from for people, you know, there's going to be people who are going to watch this because it's an Oscar Isaac movie. There's people going to watch this because it's a, uh, a, a Coen Brothers movie. I think that it, it will have its endurance in the fact that it is a it is a well made movie in a catalog with uh, you know for for people that are, that they're. I am way off base here. What I'm trying to say. Uh, <laughs> They it is well made by people who will have fans who are interested in completion and it will endure because I think it will be one that people, you know, be like, oh, you're a real Coen Brothers fan. Well, have you seen inside Llewellyn Davis? Interesting. All right. That's an interesting take Llewellyn. for sure. Nicole. I, uh, <laughs> putting the genre of music aside. <laughs> it's hard for her, folks. It, it it's a it is an ex, of course an, it's an extremely well made movie you know if nothing else the Coen brothers are excellent craftsmen when it comes to making films um but i don't know you know i've uh, i would call this like high up the mid tier or low on the higher tier of their movies mm-hmm. um they've done stuff that stands out a lot more than this, you know, d- top, top mm-hmm. tier of the Coen brothers, I would say are like raising Arizona and Fargo and no country for old men. Oh brother, where art thou? And uh, I haven't seen Oh brother, where art thou? So what? I can't speak to that. Unfortunately, I've seen <laughs> it. So we can't spin this for a new um, to two. Remember <laughs> folks. Dang it. Remember? <laughs> Have not seen. Um, but, you know, so, like, that's, I consider that to be, like, their their top, top tier. That's the stuff that unquestionably, in my mm-hmm. mind, are classics, just right out the gate. This one is more of a, of a tussle, but I could see this being shown on, you know, Turner Classic Movies 40 years from now. Them saying, oh, here's one of the Coens, you know, great um, musical films and this, you know, says this, that, and the other about humanity and making music and 
it's a great film by Oscar Isaac. And here's a little biography about uh, Carrie <laughs> Mulligan, because that's the kind of thing that Turner Classic Music does before they show a movie. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's a it's a it's a classical style movie. Yeah, for sure. I guess I would say. Yeah, as much as I love this movie, it is no, no country for old men. <laughs> uh, I wholeheartedly agree that on, on the spectrum of their movies, I wouldn't put this in my top two or three either, necessarily. Um, but I think it, I think you guys are on to something where it has that, that genre completionist thing where it's like, oh, it's an important entry in a prolific and well celebrated catalog of films from the Coen brothers. Um, and it's jam packed with a really good cast that is really well performed on all fronts. Uh, and if you're like me and you like folk music, you're going to love it. Um, so I, I think that's probably where this lands. Uh, I'm glad you guys watched it though. I think it's always fun to bring Coen brothers films to the table because they spur a ton of discussion as we have here. Uh, next week, the raid two. I am, that's going to be very different. And I'm looking forward to it. Uh, so be sure to check that out for uh, Around the World. But let's go around the table. David, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me under the username Davluz. It's D-A-V-L-U-Z. So just find me on Twitter and you'll find the rest of my stuff from there. Very good. And you, Nicole? Uh, you can find me taking care of our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Podcast. Very good. And you can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. You can email the show, hi, H-I, at mgrpodcast.com. We would love to hear from you if you have any thoughts. Have you seen this movie? Do you think it could be a future classic? In what capacity? Why or why not? We'd love to hear from you. Hi, at mgrpodcast.com. I'll do it for myself, David and Nicole. We will see you next week with The Raid 2. The Raid 2.